Chapter Fifteen of the Courage of Marjo Dune. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Courage of Marjo Dune, by James Oliver Curwood, Chapter Fifteen. Ten days after that night when he had gone into the mystery room at the chateau david and father roland clasped hands in a final farewell at white porcupine house on the cockrain river two hundred and seventy miles from god's lake it was something more than a handshake the missioner made no effort to speak in these last moments his team was ready for the return drive and he had drawn his travelling hood close about his face. In his own heart he believed that David would never return. He would go back to civilization, probably next autumn, and in time he would forget. As he said, on the last day before reaching the Cochrane, David's going was like taking a part of his heart away. He blinked now, as he dropped David's hand, blinked and turned his eyes. And David's voice had an odd break in it. He knew what the missioner was thinking. I'll come back, mon père, he called after him, as Father Roland broke away and went toward Mukoki and the dogs. I'll come back next year. Father Roland did not look back until they were started. Then he turned and waved a mittened hand. Mukoki heard the sob in his throat. David tried to call a last word to him, but his voice choked. He, too, waved a hand. He had not known that there were friendships like this between men. And as the missioner trailed steadily away from him, growing smaller and smaller against the dark rim of the distant forest, he felt a sudden fear and a great loneliness, a fear that, in spite of himself, they would not meet again, and the loneliness that comes to a man when he sees a world widening between himself and the one friend he has on earth. His one friend. The man who had saved him from himself, who had pointed out the way for him, who had made him fight. More than a friend, a father. He did not stop the broken sound that came to his lips. A low whine answered it, and he looked down at Barry, huddled in the snow within a yard of his feet. My God and Master, Barry's eyes said, as they looked up at him. I am here. It was as if David had heard the words. He held out a hand, and Barry came to him, his great wolfish body a quiver with joy. After all, he was not alone. A short distance from him, the Indian who was to take him over to Fond du Lac on Lake Athabasca was waiting with his dogs and sledge. He was a Sarsi, one of the last of an almost extinct tribe, 
so old that his hair was of a shaggy white, and he was so thin that he looked like a famine-stricken Hindu. He has lived so long that no one knows his age, Father Roland had said, and he is the best trailer between Hudson's Bay and the Peace. His name was Upsogi, the Snow Fox, and the missioner had bargained with him for a hundred dollars to take David from White Porcupine House to Fond du Lac, three hundred miles farther northwest. He cracked his long caribou gut whip to remind David that he was ready. David had said goodbye to the factor and the clerk at the company store, and there was no longer an excuse to detain him. They struck out across a small lake. Five minutes later, he looked back. Father Roland, not much more than a speck on the white plain now, was about to disappear in the forest. It seemed to David that he had stopped, and again he waved his hand, though human eyes could not have seen the movement over that distance. Not until that night, when David sat alone beside his campfire, did he begin to realize fully the vastness of this adventure into which he had plunged. The snow fox was dead asleep, and it was horribly lonely. It was a dark night, too, with the shivering wailing of a restless wind in the treetops, the sort of night that makes loneliness grow until it is like some kind of monster inside, choking off one's breath. And on Apsogi's teepee, with the firelight dancing on it, there was painted in red a grotesque fiend with horns, a medicine man, or devil chaser. And this devil chaser grinned in a bloodthirsty manner at David, as he sat near the fire, as if gloating over some dreadful fate that awaited him. It was lonely. Even Barry seemed to sense his master's oppression, for he had laid his head between David's feet, and was as still as if asleep. A long way off David could hear the howling of a wolf, and it reminded him, shiveringly, of the lead dog's howl that night before Tavish's cabin. It was like the death cry that comes from a dog's throat, and where the forest gloom mingled with the firelight he saw a phantom shadow. In the morning he found that it was a spruce bow, broken and hanging down, that made him think again of Tavish swinging in the moonlight. His thoughts bore upon him deeply and with foreboding and he asked himself questions, questions which were not new, but which came to him tonight with a new and deeper significance. He believed that Father Roland would have gasped in amazement, and that he would have held up his hand in incredulity had he known the truth of this astonishing adventure of his. An astonishing adventure, nothing less. To find a girl a girl he had never seen, who might be in another part of the world, when he had got to the end of his journey, or married. And if he found her, what would he say? What would he do? Why did he want to find her? God alone knows, he said aloud, borne down under his gloom, and went to bed.
small things, as Father Roland had frequently said, decide great events. The next morning came with a glorious sun. The world again was white and wonderful, and David found swift answers to the questions he had asked himself a few hours before. Each day thereafter the sun was warmer, and with its increasing promise of the final break-up and slush snows, Upsugi's taciturnity and anxiety grew apace. He was a little more talkative than the painted devil-chaser on the blackened canvas of his teepee, but he gave David to understand that he would have a hard time getting back with his dogs and sledge from Fond du Lac if the thaw came earlier than he had anticipated. David marveled at the old warrior's endurance, and especially when they crossed the forty miles of ice on Wollaston Lake between dawn and darkness. At high noon the snow was beginning to soften on the sunny slopes even then, and by the time they had reached the porcupine, Snowfox was chanting his despairing prayer nightly before that grinning thing on his teepee. Swastow, the thaw, she cam dam quick, he said to David, grimacing his old face to express other things which he could not say in English. And it did. Four days later, when they reached Fond du Lac, there was water underfoot in places, and Upsogi turned back on the home trail within an hour. This was in April, and the post reminded David of a great hive to which the forest people were swarming like treasure-laden bees. On the last snow they were coming in with their furs from a hundred trap-lines. Luck was with David. On the first day, Barry fought with a huge Malamute and almost killed it, and David, in separating the dogs, was slightly bitten by the Malamute. A friendship sprang up instantly between the two masters. Bouvai was a Frenchman from Horseshoe Bay, fifty miles from Fort Chippenyuan, and a hundred and fifty straight west of Fond du Lac. He was a fox hunter. I bring my furs over here, monsieur, he explained, because I had a fight with the factor at Fort Chippewan and broke out two of his teeth, which was sufficient explanation. He was delighted when he learned that David wanted to go west. They started two days later with a sledge heavily laden with supplies. The runner sank deep in the growing slush but under them was always the thick ice of Lake Athabasca, and going was not bad, except that David's feet were always wet. He was surprised that he did not take a cold. A cold? What is that? asked Bouvai, who had lived along the barrens all his life. David described a typical case of sniffles, with running at eyes and nose, and Bouvai laughed. The only cold we have up here is when the lungs get touched by frost, he said. And then you die, the following spring. Always then, the lungs sloughth away. And then he asked, why are you going west? David found himself face to face with the question, and had to answer. Just to toughen up a bit, he replied. 
wandering. Nothing else to do. And after all, he thought later, wasn't that pretty near the truth? He tried to convince himself that it was, but his hand touched the picture of the girl in his breast pocket. He seemed to feel her throbbing against it. A preposterous imagination? But it was pleasing. It warmed his blood. For a week, David and Barry remained at Horseshoe Bay with the Frenchman. Then they went on around the end of the lake toward Fort Chippewan. Bouvai accompanied them, out of friendship purely, and they traveled afoot with fifty-pound packs on their shoulders, for in the big, sunlit reaches the ground was already growing bare of snow. Bouvai turned back when they were ten miles from Fort Chippewan, explaining that it was a nasty matter to have knocked two teeth down a factor's throat, and particularly down the throat of the head factor of the Chippewan and Athabasca district. And they went down, assured Bouvai. He tried to spit them out, but couldn't. A few hours later, David met the factor and observed that Bouvai had spoken the truth. At least, there were two teeth missing, quite conspicuously. Hatchet was his name. He looked it, tall, thin, sinewy, with bird-like eyes that were shifting this way and that at all times, as though he were constantly on the alert for an ambush or feared thieves. He was suspicious of David, coming in alone in this no-man's land with a pack on his back, a white man, too, which made him all the more suspicious. Perhaps a possible free trader looking for a location. Or, worse still, a spy of the company's hated competitors, the Revelon brothers. It took some time for Father Roland's letter to convince him that David was harmless. And then, all at once, he warmed up like a birch bark ticking fire and shook David's hand three times within five minutes. So hungry was he for a white man's companionship, an honest white man's, mind you, and not a scoundrelly competitor's. He opened four cans of lobsters, left over from Christmas, for their first meal, and that night beat David at seven games of cribbage in a row. He wasn't married, he said, didn't even have an Indian woman. Hated women. If it wasn't for breeding a future generation of trappers, he would not care if they all died. No good. Positively no good. Always making trouble, more or less. That's why, a long time ago, there was a fort at Chippenuan, sort of blockhouse that still stood there. Two men, of two different tribes, wanted same woman, quarreled, fought, one got his blamed head busted, tribes took it up, raised hell for a time, all over that rag of a woman. Terrible creatures women were. He emphasized his belief in short, biting snatches of words, as though afraid of wearing out his breath or his vocabulary or both. Maybe his teeth had something to do with it. Where the two were missing, he carried the stem of his pipe, and when he talked the stem clicked, 
like a castanet. David had come at a propitious moment. A most propitious moment, Hatchet told him. He had done splendidly that winter. His bargains with the Indians had been sharp and exceedingly profitable for the company, and as soon as he got his furs off to Fort McMurray on their way to Edmonton, he was going on a long journey of inspection, which was his reward for duty well performed. His fur barges were ready. All they were waiting for was the breaking up of the ice, when the barges would start up the Athabasca, which meant south, while he, in his big war canoe, would head up the peace, which meant west. He was going as far as Hudson's Hope, and this was within two hundred and fifty miles of where David wanted to go. He proved that fact by digging up an old company map. David's heart beat an excited tattoo. This was more than he had expected, almost too good to be true. You can work your way up there with me, declared Hatchet, clicking his pipe stem. Won't cost you a stent, not a damn cent. Work, eat, smoke, fine trip, just for company. A man needs company once in a while. Decent company. I shall go by middle of May. Two weeks. Meanwhile, have a devil of a time playing cribbage. They did. Cribbage was Hatchet's one passion, unless another was beating the Indians. Rascally devils, he would say, driving his cribbage pegs home. Always trying to put off poor four on me for good. Deserve to be beat. And I beat him. Damn if I don't. How did you lose your teeth? David asked him at last. They were playing late one night. Hatchet sat up in his chair as if stung. His eyes bulged as he looked at David, and his pipe stem clicked fiercely. Frenchman, he said. Dirty pig of a Frenchman. No use for him. None. Told him women were no good. All women were bad. Saying he had a woman. Said I didn't care. All bad just the same. Said the woman he referred to was his wife. Told him he was a fool to have a wife. No warning, the pig. He biffed me. Knocked those two teeth out. Down. I'll get him some day. Flay him. Make dog whips of his dirty hide. All Frenchmen ought to die. Hope to God they will. Starve. Freeze. In spite of himself, David laughed. Hatchet took no offense, but the grimness of his long, somber countenance remained unbroken. A day or two later, he discovered Hatchet in the act of giving an old, white-haired half-breed cripple a bag of supplies. Hatchet shook himself, as if caught in an act of crime. I'm going to kill that old dog rib soon as the ground's soft enough to dig a grave, he declared, shaking a fist fiercely after the old Indian. Beggar, a sneak, no good, ought to die, giving him just enough to keep him alive until the ground is soft. After all, Hatchet's face belied his heart. 
His tongue was like a cleaver. It ripped things, generally. Was terrible in its threatening, but harmless, and tremendously amusing to David. He liked Hatchet. His cadaverous countenance, never breaking into a smile, was the oddest mask he had ever seen a human being wear. He believed that if it once broke into a laugh, it would not straighten back again without leaving a permanent crack. And yet he liked the man, and the days passed swiftly. It was the middle of May before they started up the piece, three days after the fur barges had gone down the Athabasca. David had never seen anything like Hatchet's big war canoe, roomy as a small ship, and light as a feather on the water. Four powerful dog ribs went with him, making six paddles in all. When it came to a question of Barry, Hatchet put down his foot with emphasis. What? Make a damn passenger of a dog? Never. Let him fall ashore or die. This would undoubtedly have been Barry's choice if he had had a voice in the matter. Day after day he followed the canoe, swimming streams and working his way through swamp and forest. It was no easy matter. In the deep, slow waters of the lower piece, the canoe made thirty-five miles a day. Twice it made forty. But Hatchet kept Barry well fed, and each night the dog slept at David's feet in camp. On the sixth day, they reached Fort Vermilion, and Hatchet announced himself like a king, for he was on inspection. Company inspection, mind you. Important. A week later, they arrived at Peace River Landing, two hundred miles farther west, and on the twentieth day came to Fort St. John, fifty miles from Hudson's Hope. From here, David saw his first of the mountains. He made out their snowy peaks clearly, seventy miles away, and with his finger on a certain spot on Hatchet's map, his heart thrilled. He was almost there. Each day the mountains grew nearer. From Hudson's hope, he fancied that he could almost see the dark blankets of timber on their sides. Hatchet grunted. They were still forty miles away. And Mac Fay, the factor at Hudson's Hope, looked at David in a curious sort of way when David told him where he was going. You're the first white man to do it, he said, an inflection of doubt in his voice. It's not bad going up the Finley as far as the Kodocha. But from there... He shook his head. He was short and thick, and his jaw hung heavy with disapproval. You're still seventy miles from the Stikin when you end up at the Kodocha, he went on, thumbing the map. Who the devil will you get to take you on from there? Straight over the backbone of the Rockies. No trails. Not even a post there. Too rough a country. Even the Indians won't live in it. He was silent for a moment, as if reflecting deeply. Old Toaskoop and his tribe are on the Quadocha, he added, as if seeing a glimmer of hope. He might, but I doubt it. They're a lazy lot of mongrels. 
Glasscook's people, who carve things out of wood to worship. Still, he might. I'll send up a good man with you to influence him. You'd better take along a couple hundred dollars in supplies as a further inducement. The man was a half-breed. Three days later, they left Hudson's Hope, with Barry riding amidships. The mountains loomed up swiftly after this, and the second day they were among them. After that, it was slow work fighting their way up against the current of the Finley. It was tremendous work. It seemed to David that half their time was spent amid the roar of rapids. Twenty-seven times within five days they made portages. Later on it took them two days to carry their canoe and supplies around a mountain. Fifteen days were spent in making eighty miles. Easier travel followed then. It was the 20th of June when they made their last camp before reaching the Quadocha. The sun was still up, but they were tired, utterly exhausted. David looked at his map and the figures in the notebook he carried. He had come close to 1,500 miles since that day when he and Father Roland and Mukoki had set out for the Cochrane. Fifteen hundred miles, and he had less than a hundred more to go. Just over those mountains, somewhere beyond them. It looked easy. He would not be afraid to go alone if old Tawaskuk refused to help him. Yes, alone. He would find his way somehow. He and Barry. He had unbounded confidence in Barry. Together they could fight it out. Within a week or two they would find the girl. And then... He looked at the picture a long time in the glow of the setting sun. End of chapter 15